0: is October 27, 2011. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, the University of Texas at San Antonio's neurobiology podcast. Our guest today is Karen Bales uh, from UC Davis, and I'm actually going to pass it over to Rama Ratnam to
1: give her uh, her introduction. Thank you, wow. Salma. Um, yes, Karen is, uh, is with the University of California Davis. Uh, she's an associate professor in the Department of Psychology and a scientist with the California National Primate Research Center so we're really, really pleased to have uh, Karen with us today. And uh, we welcome to our campus, and uh, we will talk quite a bit about her very interesting research. Uh, the major focus of her work is the endocrinology and neurobiology of social bonding, and the model systems that she studies are the prairie vole and the coppery titty monkey. They're monogamous species, and ideally suited for her research, and I'm sure we're going to hear a lot about it. So I'm back to you, Salon. Gosh,
0: you're so good at that, Roma. Can I conscript you for every podcast? <laughs> I usually just literally name rank affiliation. Karen,
2: say hi for voice recognition purposes.
0: Hi. Hi, Karen. And we've got with us today Michelle Valero, who's a uh, PhD candidate in our department. Hi, Michelle. Hi. And Charles, Charlie Wilson, hi. as usual. Hi. And I'm your host, Salma Karashi. So... Um, I just want to get started. This is a little bit of new territory for us. We don't usually go into social behavior as much, and this is great. Um, I have My main question up front is just, just about terminology and definitions, and hopefully they'll be uh, helpful to me as well as our listeners in terms of setting up some of the themes of your, of your work. So uh, first, could you talk about social monogamy uh, and differentiate it, I guess, from other types of monogamy. <laughs>
2: I didn't realize there were, there were multiple types. Not wanting to actually say the word. <laughs> well, at, at
3: its most simple in its most simple form, social monogamy is just a social system based on a male-female pair. And so, in the wild that can be anything from, a, you know, a male and a female who share a territory but spend very little time together, really just defend a common territory, maybe even not sleep together. Uh, in the same nest, to um, a, a social system like the teddy monkeys or the voles where the males and the male and female actually share an emotional pair bond, um, and the male helps raise the babies. Uh, so, social monogamy, though in all of its forms, uh, we distinguish from sexual monogamy uh, because, to date, pretty much no species that's ever been examined. Uh, has shown been shown to be actually sexually monogamous. So social monogamy is a um, a choice of who you spend your time with, not who you have sex with.
0: Okay, great. And then this idea of pair bonding, right uh, so there are multiple types of pair bonding, and they aren't necessarily the same thing as socially monogamous.
3: Well, pair bonding is a term that's it's based on the psychological concept of an attachment. So attachments um, were first studied really as infant to mother types of social bonds. So um, attachments are bonds that are characterized by um, attraction, a preference for a particular partner, and distress upon separation from the partner, the ability of that partner to reduce your your stress in a novel situation. Um, And all of these things uh, can be present, in a monogamous pair, and in that case, we call it we call it a pair bond. But the truth is that in most monogamous species, we really just don't know whether or not the the pairs uh, share that bond or not. It, just because it hasn't been studied. And um, <laughs> knocking the table. Um, and you know the, there are then uh, of course lots of other types of dyads in which you can look at to see if they have uh, an attachment or not. So. In TD monkeys, we see a bond between a, a bidirectional bond between the male and female pair mates. So both of them are attached to their pair mate, whereas neither the male or the female shows an attachment bond towards the offspring. So you can remove an offspring from the family, and there's no uh, endocrine, no stress response on the part of the parents. They don't care, um, and the offspring actually show an attachment bond to their father. So that's the, this is the work of Sally Mendoza um, at UC Davis, who's worked with the TD Monkeys for a number of decades. And they the babies show a slight stress response if the mother is taken out of the cage, but they're left with their father. But the other way around, if the father's taken out and they're left with their mother, they they're, they have a very large rise in cortisol. So
0: this is at the serum level, so these are not neural correlates.
3: Yeah, most of the research to date has been done um, done Stemically. with plasma, yeah.
1: Roma? I just had one question. about You use the word attachment. Right. Now, attachment in the colloquial sense, we all understand, but what does attachment in a sort of a neural context mean? I mean? How would you even find the locus of attachment?
3: Well, I suppose that's what the whole field of, you know, you know the neurobiology of affiliation is, is trying to study. Um, well, so the way that Tom Insel framed this, you know, 20, I guess about 20 years ago now, uh, he wrote a paper, the title of which was something like "Is Love an Addiction," and the idea being that the the formation the experience neural experience of an attachment is like the formation of an addiction and involves um, both uh, dopamine systems and uh, social memory type systems. So, as far as where an attachment is in the brain, I guess that's what I would <laughs> would say. So, so I th-
0: so I. I want to get to your model systems too, just uh-huh. in terms of, you know, how, so you've done a lot of work in Prairieville, and that's been sort of the most uh, prevalent model, that's a rodent system, mm-hmm. but I guess there's some sense that we should have a bit of caution about over-interpreting rodent results, and so you're developing, I guess you're you're one of the people who's really developing this primate model.
3: For- right, so um, I, I is, there's really only been a couple of species of primates that have been uh, studied in relationship to the physiology or neurobiology of social monogamy. So there's been work done in marmosets and tamarins, which may or may not really be monogamous. It depends on how you want to define monogamy, since they often show uh, variation in their social systems, whereas, you know, some groups may be polyandrous, some may be polygynous. Um, so there's been a, a little bit of work done there. But with the TD monkeys, that, that is really the goal, is to be able to have... A uh, model that has a clo- uh, neuro anatomy and neurophysiology much closer to that of humans than the prairie but the, that's also very strongly socially monogamous.
0: So when when you look at these animals, the way I imagine it, and obviously again, you know, I'm, I'm a completely naive person <laughs> in a lot of ways about this stuff. So you see this innate trajectory of maturity happening, and and that's sort of dictated by the. You the, the gonads and it's sexually dimorphic and there's, you know, a lot of social behavior sort of, I guess, derives or is associated with that. And then upon this you are describing kind of more, um, I guess, uh, situational things like pair bonding and then correlating changes in neuropeptide levels mm-hmm. to those things. Could you talk about the separability and interplay between those two systems and maybe also comment on um, whether these situational things that you're talking about, you know, that, that, that can... That change um, neuropeptide levels. Mm-hmm. Are we always to assume that they're causal to behavior? Or I mean, can you take it take it as you will? I, I know it's a big meandering good, question.
3: Big question. <laughs> um, so the first question is, you know, what are the contribute if I remember? What are the contributions of development versus you know plastic situations to to pair bonding and and. Uh, these other social behaviors and that's something that we're, we're it's a it's a, a, an explicit goal of our grant to try to figure out um, so socially monogamous species have another characteristic that I haven't mentioned which is that often the offspring stay way past the the age of sexual maturity so kind of like humans um, you know we we don't kick them out when they <laughs> go through puberty but um, And these guys, they probably go through puberty at about 18 months, and they can exist peacefully with their parents until they're four or five years old, even sometimes. Um, What we see is that at some point, uh, and it varies by animal, uh, we see this most often in males, the male will, it's, it's like a switch goes off in his head, and he decides that he's an adult now. And what we see is that he starts performing behaviors that are associated with being uh, the, the mated male uh, in their own group. Often he'll get a little fresh with his mother and also start doing things like duetting with his mother, which uh, duetting is another behavior characteristic of a bonded pair. And at that point, the dad kicks him out when that happens. So there's a definite developmental component to, to the readiness to form a pair bond, but Having said that, it's it's first of all it's not tied closely to gonadal development because it often happens way past when these guys are sexually mature, um, and it's something that it, all, it seems like you can jumpstart. So I can go I could go pull a male out of a cage before he's reached that point and pair him up with a female and he does fine. So it's something that you, they reach a it looks like they reach a developmental time point when they're really past due to to form a pair bond. And um, their attachment relationship to their father doesn't, you know, doesn't do it for them anymore. But then there's also a situational component to it where you can speed them through this process by putting them with a strange female. Um, Now, I can't remember the next part of your question. (laughs) Well, so you, so you look at the, look at changes in,
0: I guess, guess you want to introduce some of the oxytocin, vasopressin work and, and, and its relationship to separation and
3: well, so, um, oxytocin and vasopressin, of course, are they're these peptides that are produced in the brain, uh, produced in the hypothalamus, and then um, there are, there are central projections from the paraventricular nucleus of the hypothalamus throughout the brain that are involved in behavior.
2: And so, uh-huh. sorry, can I interrupt sure. to get some clarity on that? So I'm, I know that oxytocin and vasopressin are uh, released in the anterior pituitary.
3: A posterior, posterior, posterior. Yeah. posterior pituitary. Mm-hmm.
2: And then, and that enters the bloodstream. Mm-hmm. And then, their axons from right. the same cells or from nearby cells. So, which it, is it?
3: It depends on species. So, rats, for instance, have very distinct magnocellular and parvocellular populations in the PVN and the SON. And the magnocellular ones extend to the posterior pituitary, and the parvocellular division goes to other areas of of the brain, uh, mostly limbic system areas. Um, in other species, sometimes those cells are all mixed up, but typically they'll they'll they will they will they will you know there'll be some cells that extend to other areas of the brain and some that go to the posterior pituitary. It's, it's so they're
2: always separate cell groups. Yeah, they're separate. Uh, they just are sometimes separated from each other, sometimes mixed.
3: Yeah, exactly.
2: Um,
3: now the the in within those two areas, the PVN and the SON. It's, it's really just kind of a difference of proportion as far as how, how many are extending to the posterior pituitary versus going to the rest of the brain. So, for instance, in the prairie something like, I don't know, 10 or 20%, I think, is, uh, is in the ballpark anyway, of the SON neurons extend to the nucleus accumbens, uh, whereas you do all, you know, the PVN, go you do have... all PVN is the one that usually gets focused on as far as behavior, but it also does have a neurons extending to the posterior pituitary. So, yeah, I don't know if that made things more or less confusing. So but. <laughs> I,
2: I guess part of the question uh-huh. is, if the, it was collaterals of the same groups of neurons mm-hmm. that go to the two places, then you could read out release of the hormones into the blood, and that would tell you about release in the brain. Right. But because they're separate groups of neurons, there's no Essential reason why they would be correlated with each other and at all. They could be doing completely different things at different times.
3: And that's been a major problem of studying oxytocin and vasopressin because we keep wanting to, and I, I I do the same. I'm doing the same thing. We keep wanting to figure out a way to to make peripheral measures meaningful. Um, and chances are that that they're they're not. They're just not going to reflect most of what's going on in the brain. So, but they do seem to, what's, what's weird, and we still don't really understand it, is um, like I said, there's these very, there are these very large differences in baseline functioning in humans and in every um, other species we've looked at so far. And by that I just mean that there are very different levels of oxytocin in the blood taken at baseline. And um, no one knows knows what that means yet. But it, it, and no one knows if the whole system is working harder or if it's just the the um, uh, magnocellular neurons that are extending the posterior pituitary or what. So,
2: um, so we don't know whether their firing is correlated in these the neurons. I would, I would think maybe some. In vivo recording experiments would tell us something about that, but
3: yeah, I don't think we know. So, I can tell you that um, in when we do immunohistochemistry in prairie voles, we very often find correlations between blood and uh, and immunolabeled cells in those two areas. But prairie voles are one of those species where it's not easy to distinguish magnocellular and parvocellular neurons, so um, it's not a yeah, not a very uh, exact science.
1: So, is it released on a continuous basis? No.
3: Well, okay. So here's the other thing. Oxytocin. Maybe. Yeah, oxytocin. So, oxytocin responds strongly to stimuli. That's that's why you get milk letdown responses, right? Right. right. And um, women who hear a baby cry, uh, you know, breastfeeding women, um, but. So so a question that comes up a lot is why do we see these differences in baseline levels? You know, why is there anything, why are we measuring, able to measure this in the blood? Because it's broken down very quickly in the blood enzymatically. So we, there must be some level of, of tonic release in addition to these strong reactions um, to stimuli, these kind of bursts.
0: So, so do we know about the causality of so for example, these separation ex- experiments that you do where you see big changes in neuropeptide level Are we saying that they're driven by peptide changes or that they're
3: Well the separation experiments, the main changes that they saw that we've seen are in glucose uptake and and cortisol. So we don't we don't actually know uh-huh. n- neuropeptides in, in the monkeys. In the prairie bulls, some people have, Shown changes actually that you get up regulation of or up, you know, increased production, I guess, of oxytocin uh, with separation. Um, so, I mean, I think it's a reciprocal uh, interaction. You know, you, you can oxytocin affects behavior, behavior affects oxytocin. Um, so, lots of times, what, what people have been finding so, like I said, if you, if you isolate a prairie bull. You get higher oxytocin production in the PBN. You also, whether you do are looking at a human or a prairie vole, you get increased um, oxytocin in the plasma. So it's almost like our bodies respond to social stressors by trying to by increasing oxytocin. That was something that like threw people off for quite a long time because they felt like if you're in a bad social situation, should your oxytocin be low? Um, But I think it's um, our body trying to maybe, you know, kind of bring us back to homeostasis,
2: you know, or something. Um, But these kinds of questions are usually solved by an experiment. You inject oxytocin into some place in the brain, and then you see if everything else happens or not. Do we have those kinds of experiments?
3: Um, For things like pair bonding, for things like uh, uh, in prairie bowls, for things like um, alloparenting in prairie bowls, yeah, yeah. So um, there's a sex, a sex difference story where, um, fem- you know, females are <coughs> more sensitive to oxytocin, males are more sensitive to vasopressin, um, but both sexes need both of the hormones in order to um, to uh, engage in these behaviors.
1: So is it shown that if you, do, if you completely eliminate oxytocin, is it possible to show that the pair bonding does not exist? Yes, not? it
3: has been shown. Okay. Yeah.
1: So it's, an, it's absolutely necessary.
3: Yes. If you if you block oxytocin, the prairie won't form a pair bond. Sorry, I think I was making that question more complicated than what you were actually asking. Um, it's but, usually the other way around. Usually I make things more complicated.
0: We
1: just we just go in a different direction. <laughs> okay, now so, I
3: know. So, um, so yes, that, and so both sexes, uh, if you block oxytocin or vasopressin or D- dopamine D two receptors in either sex, you'll block the pair bond from forming in prairie voles. and monkeys. Right. There we haven't done those experiments yet, and um, the reason is that for oxytocin and vasopressin, um, until recently, well, still for there's still a lack of tools for vasopressin. Until recently, we didn't have an oxytocin antagonist that would cross the blood-brain barrier readily, um, and uh, we we don't cannulate the Td monkeys. So um, now there's there is one available. So uh, hopefully we'll be able to do that kind of experiment soon.
2: Lots and lots of people take D2 receptor antagonists. Do they have, of course, those people usually have some kind of disturbed social uh, <laughs> behavior to begin with, but what do we know about the effects of that on human paradigm?
3: That's an interesting question. Um, I, I don't know that the, anyone's looked at that. I think there's been some research on dopamine receptor genetic variations and human pair bonding. Um, I couldn't tell you off the top of my head what the associations were. But there's a lot of interesting research in humans uh, right now on oxytocin receptor, vasopressin receptor, dopamine receptor, genetic polymorphisms, and the relationship to relationships, well, the relationship to relationships, yeah.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So would that explain the enormous variation that we see in mate preference in in, in humans? and, it could. And, and, the, and the bonding, differential bonding ability in, between couples you see in humans.
3: Well, I think there's two things that explain it. One is uh, genetic variation, and the other is early experience. So in the prairie voles, for instance, um, you know, there's this story where where you have polymorphisms. You have a short form and a long form of the vasopressin V one a receptor allele, and... Then, and the ones with the long version pair-bond, better. The ones with the short version do not pair-bond as well. Fine. But then when you look at receptor binding, you know the, the functional outcome of this genetic variation, the one area that doesn't vary based on the gene is the ventral pallidum, which is the area where they think the most important things are going on in pair-bonding. But we find differences in the ventral palatin based on early experience. We find differences in vasopressin receptor binding based on whether or not they were exposed to oxytocin early on. So I think there's, you know, everything's got to be a combination of genetic background and what your parents did to you when you were a baby, (laughs) how badly they messed you up.
1: (laughs) So... So what are these, what is the oxytocin and vasopressin receptor? What are these receptors? Are they, they're metabotropic receptors? Yeah, they're G-protein sure, right?
3: coupled receptors. G- right?
1: Okay. Yeah. And they're found in the they're, they're Among other
3: two. places, yeah. They're found a lot, there's a lot in the, um, just throughout the limbic system, really.
1: Yeah, right throughout the limbic system.
3: Okay. A lot in
1: the ventral forebrain.
3: So you
0: said that the um, mom and dad will pair bond to each other uh-huh. and that the baby... Um, or offspring will pair bond to the dad. Uh-huh. But what's the difference between... And the, the, that pair bond is not reversed from, from the parents to the baby. What But what's the difference between mom and dad, I guess, that dad will be motivated to carry the baby around and mom will act so sort of <laughs> aggressively maybe or well, different to it?
3: The, from what we see, it's not actually that the male uh, is motivated to carry the baby the male is just tolerant of the baby so um the male will allow what does that, what does that mean How do you, means he for instance um if you if you if you look at a marmoset marmoset baby marmosets are attractive to the whole group everybody wants to carry them right dad mom older siblings i would never say that a marmoset didn't like its babies or something but um the td monkeys uh no, parents actually experience um, higher stress reactivity. They, they actually have higher baseline cortisol and higher responses to stressors when there's a small baby in the group. They av- actively avoid the baby if possible. So, uh, you know, it, it's really kind of sad because uh, sometimes, you know, an, an animal who's, who's carrying the baby, everyone else in the group gives them kind of a wide
2: birth.
3: <laughs> um, and... So, you know the 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 mother goes and gets the baby occasionally to relieve pressure in her her, her uh, milk, <laughs> uh, you know, in her um, uh, breasts. And then the the male wants to be next to the mother, right? I mean, the male wants to be next to the female. And so, and the male is just uh, developed tolerance to the baby being on him. So. That's a worrisome th- model for, for human <laughs> bond to human well, a bond.
0: Um so I guess I just don't understand then why the baby would feel pair bonded to the father and not to the mother if there's no
3: well think about okay, so first of all, um what produces you know, what produ- what's attractive to a baby? If you think about the old like Harry Harlow experiments between the wire mother and the cloth mother, The baby baby rhesus monkeys in those experiments wanted to be on the cloth mother. They wanted the contact comfort, right? Even when uh, they weren't getting any food, right? right? So I always look at this as sort of the natural version of those experiments. Here's a case where you're not getting, you know, your food and your contact comfort from the same source. And it's the contact comfort that the babies find attractive, so...
0: Isn't food, isn't feeding a source of contact comfort? I mean, there's a certain number of hours a day that they feed, right? Maybe
3: well, so. it's it's pretty brief overall. I would I would guess that over the course of the day, they spend maybe an hour feeding because yeah. it's just these little brief bouts, and they probably most of them spend 23 hours on their dad, so. I mean it's certainly a, a. you get lots of things through milk you know um, it's you know a source of hormones or maybe well we know there's oxytocin in milk it probably gets destroyed in the stomach but um, but but yeah it, it it's sort of the carrot and the stick with the mothers I think they get the milk but then as soon as they're done the mothers start harassing them you know rubbing them against walls or making them cry so that the dad will come
1: and get them so yeah, I'm really intrigued by this It tells the whole concept of you know Parenting and familial structure on its head because we have pair bonding, very strong pair bonding between these males and females in the species, right? And don't give they don't give a hoot for their children, right? The young ones. They want
2: to get rid of them. And the children end up just fine. So <laughs> <laughs> well, we, we
3: discussed this actually at the student lunch. It's like evolution only has to be good enough. You don't have to. You just, right. as long as the kids are surviving, so, then. Okay,
1: so then, I mean, then you could put this in the context. I mean, then you could rather say that these, these, I hate to use these anthropomorphic terms. But they're desperately in love with each other and don't want to share their lives with anybody else.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Would that be a fair
2: way of looking at it? Um... That would be anthropomorphic. Yeah,
3: (laughs) the whole thing is anthropomorphic. (laughs) Well, you know, I I think so. People, this is this is, uh, you know, to this relates back to your question. But um, people often ask me if I think humans are socially or, or if humans are monogamous or not. And I mean, that's that's a very loaded question. But what I do think humans are capable of, which we don't see in very many other species. Are a very maintaining a very large number of very close relationships all at the same time. So you you can we can love our partners and that doesn't mean we love our children less or our parents less. Maybe it does for some people, but in, in general, <laughs> you're you're capable of having very deep emotional ties to more than one um, uh, other person at the same time. And so, I mean, I think that the TD Monkey system is just, you know, it's a very simplified version, which makes it easier to study, Study, right? right. Because we only have this one, uh, for an adult anyway, this only this one relevant bond. And, yeah.
1: Yeah, it's a great model system in that sense.
3: Yeah. So I need your thoughts, since you're someone who's really qualified
0: to talk about this, um, and I certainly am not, what you think about... a Use of peptides as commercially available um, social in, enhancers of social engagement, or I guess, you know, the trust, you know, oxytocin being the trust hormone. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um,
3: so I, th- I think they're, uh, in most circumstances, unlikely to have much effect, <laughs> uh, especially as uh, advertised for use where you're supposed to spray it on yourself and then. Um, that's supposed to make other people trust you. I don't think that's going to work at all. Going um, to it make you trust other people, if
1: anything, right?
2: right. Yeah. That's
1: yeah, that's true. <laughs> They're in Europe, I think, but to, to reduce ethnic pensions and so on. Trust
2: me, I just started <laughs> some
0: all those craft
3: feeders that you see in the sky. <laughs> well, my understanding, and I don't know how much of this is is urban legend or not, but I always heard that the uh, there was funding. Via the Department of Defense for Oxytocin Research because they would they were so worried that other people would use it to like manipulate um,
1: our agents <laughs> Some or time something. Time. <laughs> Any soldiers hugging one another? Yeah. Yeah.
3: <laughs> so
0: but, but, but the, the more therapeutic type things for, auti- really. for autism and it's getting kids to socially, socially right. engage. Um, so I, I
3: think it holds both great promise and uh, great danger because um, you know, in short-term studies, it does seem to affect social engagement. There have been studies in clinical populations as well as in you know the typical uh, undergraduate <laughs> um, volunteers. Um, but at the same time, uh, we have zero understanding of how chronic use or developmental use will affect the system. And some things that typically could happen is we could downregulate oxytocin receptors. We could get secondary binding to vasopressin receptors and affect those. Um, We could uh, end up with lower production because we're just downregulating the whole system. And um, so, I think this needs to be very carefully studied in animal models, which it has not been before we uh, really can be before I personally would be comfortable giving it to human.
2: Does it do anything at all? I mean, people who try this, what do they say about it?
3: Um, it's, it's interesting. Well, so, I mean, there's been, like I said, this explosion of research and it's usually shown to, if you're, the kind of games that they do are often these economic games where like, I have $10 and I can give you any amount of that that I want. And if you give it back to me, then I get doubled. Right. So they've shown that if I take oxytocin, I'm willing to give you more and, that, uh, there's various other aspects, uh, of this. I think, um, you're, you're possibly willing, uh, you know, you trust other person more and, and they trust you more, I believe. Um, I think that they haven't necessarily done all the controls they should in some of these experiments. They've controlled for things like, is it just that, you know, people exhibit riskier behavior? They've controlled for that, but what they haven't really controlled for is do they just not care? Know what I mean? Maybe I'm giving you all ten dollars because I just don't care if you give it back or not. (laughs) Um, So they have shown effects, they've shown effects on um, things like uh, recall, you know, emotional recall. You have warmer, fuzzier uh, recall if you've (laughs) taken oxytocin. Uh, If I look at Michelle's face right now, which looks very neutral, but I've taken oxytocin, I might be more willing to interpret her uh, uh, face as being friendly and positive. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, so all of, in all of the, a lot of these acute studies, I mean, they are finding effects, uh, uh, although very few of these studies um, use more than one dose. And the times when they do it, are kind of scary because, for instance, they, they did a study recently in uh, patients with schizophrenia and got completely opposite results with the two different doses. And uh, you know, for these reasons that peptides often didn't have these weird dose response curves because p- quite possibly they were they were binding to vasopressin receptors as well. So so I, I do think there's I do think there's promise, but I just uh, you know, I think we need to be careful. So
2: So listeners, stay away from that.
3: Oh
2: <laughs> <laughs> $29.95 at
0: Amazon Amazon. Exactly. Uh, thank you, Karen Bales, for talking to us. This has been Neuroscientist Talk Shop. Thank <laughs> you.